What's up? This is Hollow, and you're listening to Behind the Decks. Enjoy. Behind the Decks series. This is a vent podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. This episode is definitely a pinch myself to check its real kind of episode of Behind the Decks because I'm checking in with a producer. I have been a fan of for over a decade and is one of my favourite producers in the house and disco scene, none other than Louis LaRoche. Louis, or Brett as he is known to his mates, has been in the game since 2008, if you can believe that, and came to prominence on a track he made called Love. It sampled Michael Jackson and was originally mistaken by people to be a daft punk record, so aka made by Thomas Bangalter. He formed his own record label, Ever After Records, in 2008, and has put out three studio albums and ten EPs. He has put out official remixes for the likes of Fatboy Slim, Basement Jacks, DJ Spiller, Aeroplane, Del Marquise of the Scissor Sisters, and the Superman Lovers, so a lot of legends in that list. In this episode, we discuss his music journey and being in the game for over 14 years, the difference between being independent and on a record label, and the challenges both those bring, the impact that touring has had on his mental health, viral bandwagoning in the industry, and we all know what that means, to be honest, and having to be a one-man band as an independent artist. So what that means is doing his own social media, marketing, remixing, and everything in between. We also discuss the challenges he has had in separating Louis Laroche, the artist, from Brett, the man, partner, brother, son, so forth. The shyness he had as a child growing up and the brain hemorrhage his mother went through in 2020 and the impact that had on him personally. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Decks with Louis LaRoche. It's a very surreal moment for Behind the Decks and for Vent and for the Just Checking podcast because I'm talking to none other and the man, the myth, the legend that is Louis LaRoche. Welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. To be honest, I can't believe that you actually responded to my email. So it's pretty surreal to be chatting to you right now. How are you getting on, mate? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thanks. How yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. You have, I think it's fair to say, paved the way for so many UK producers and possibly international producers in the disco and house scene, mate. So I'm so excited to discuss your journey. So without further ado, shall we just start the show? Let's start the pod as we always do on Behind the Decks by talking about your music journey, Louis, and how, I guess, Louis LaRoche started. So tell me a bit how your kind of love affair with music began. What were your favourite records growing up, maybe music idols, and then how you first got into producing or playing instruments? It started pretty young for me. My parents were both pretty big music lovers, and I think that kind of rubbed off on me. So my childhood was kind of going through their vinyl collection. (laughs) (laughs) My dad was into rock and my mum was into like soul and disco and stuff. So I think I bought like my first cassette tapes and CDs maybe when I was about eight or nine. Cassette tapes. And I kind of cassette tapes here for the audience. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I started 
kind of more in the electronic world. So like um, Fatboy Slim and Basement Jacks and Daft Punk and The Prodigy and The Chemical Brothers, like all the big UK electronic acts. And then from that, I kind of got into sampling because I realized that a lot of these records I liked use samples and then that kind of did full circle and led me back to funk and soul and disco again so that was quite nice and then in terms of like myself and how I started to get into music and playing music and stuff for my 12th birthday I got my first pair of turntables <laughs> 12 that is starting yeah. young <laughs> yeah I know I know and I was very lucky that my you know parents just found you know this really cheap belt drive turntables I was just messing about with them so you know like uh, tried scratching yeah. and tried mixing records and stuff and the a-track um, way <laughs> yeah yeah and then finally that kind of led on to like early music software so just like really dodgy copies of like cubase and stuff when i was a kid and i didn't really get into playing instruments and even now like listeners behind me i've got like some simpson some bad boy stuff but, some uh, bad boy sins <laughs> like three tears but I, I i literally i can't play them they're all linked up to my computer with midi so i tell the computer what to play and then it plays it from the simps so that's you know my forte that's what i'm good at whereas if you stick me in front of a piano or a guitar like I, I can't play it but yeah that's sort of the journey that's sort of where it happened i hope your uh, yeah, i hope your happened. parents soundproofed your room when you were playing with those decks <laughs> <laughs> just lots of all the time what we yeah. let ourselves in for <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think a drum kit probably would have been quieter <laughs> <laughs> what was the inspiration behind the name louis larache and does it hold any special meaning to you or did you just pull it out of a hat and it stuck it it very much sounds I guess much like we'll talk about the sound that you produced, a sort of French touch inspired name, or at least some semblance of that. Was was that the case? Definitely. It was definitely French touch in- inspired because that was a, the music that I was kind of listening to at the time and sort of obsessed myself with. But the name itself was inspired by a Stuart Price alias called Jacques Leconte. And Stuart, obviously being a UK producer, born in the UK, but he had like a sound which was very reminiscent of what the French guys were doing. So that was kind of the inspiration just to kind of have, I mean, initially I wanted to kind of be like an ominous and be like, who is this guy? And he's got this weird name. And I mean, I'll talk about it later, but like it didn't plan out that way. And so it's one of those names where it's like, I like it and I dislike it at the same time. I like it because it is catchy and different. But at the same time, it's like for a UK producer, obviously, I, all the time I get mistaken for being French, even now. And so I kind of shot myself in the foot there. But yeah, you know, I, I kind of stuck with it because I know that's how people know mm. me. So. And as you broke into that scene and into the French touch scene and the house and disco scene, was there a moment where you felt accepted or belonged in it was it a nice text message from a producer you admired maybe a great dj set that gave you like an amazing feedback or or maybe just a compliment from a fan or even a family member who sort of finally listened to you after saying oh i wonder wonder how he's getting on maybe i'll give him a go <laughs> honestly i think and i still remember it like the first big moment was a radio one play that was like you know suddenly to be oh well my music is being played alongside all these other people. And it was like, almost like, okay, now I'm on like a level playing field kind of thing. Who was um, it? Was it like Mr. Jam, Annie Mack, Annie Nightingale? or I think it was Annie, actually. Who's just um, done her think... last sh- ever show at Radio 1 at time yep. of recording yesterday. 
Yeah, yeah. It was 2009, I think, a song that I did called Sunshine Hotel. And actually, I've got JMO and Andy to thank. So they used to do a show on Radio 1, and I got a bit pally with them. And then I think they sent the song to Annie, and then Annie liked it. And then she eventually put it on one of our compilation CDs. So that was amazing. And then the other sort of key moment, like physically, was playing festivals. Because mm. again, it was like, well, I'm on the same you know, stages, this person and this person, and this person. So you kind of felt like accepted and a part of the scene or whatever and taken seriously or whatever. Mm. So Before we talk about performing and producing, Louis, I'm very keen on Behind the Decks to expose the myths and show the realities of being a producer or DJ in this scene and that the superstar DJ life, I guess we can call it, is, is only really applicable to a, a tiny minority or group of producers. What are some of the realities that you've experienced positive or negative, you know, when you were doing it part-time, when you were doing it full-time that you can share with the listeners, whether that comes into work-life balance or relationships or mental health or something else entirely. I mean, how much time have we got? Because <laughs> <laughs> literally I could, I could go on for days, but I would probably say it's like extreme highs and extreme lows. There's a mixture of talent and there's a mixture of luck, but then it's also about staying on top of trends, but then it's also not following the crowd and jumping on bandwagons and all, all that, that kind of stuff. Contradictions here. Um, <laughs> so like, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think it's a real struggle sometimes to know what to do because there's no rule book. Mm. You know, nobody tells you exactly what to do. And I think there's two faces of music or of the music world, which is music business and the music industry. Mm. And I think they are completely different. And I think a lot of people sometimes get in the way of what you're doing. So you've got like managers and labels and A&R people. And that's all the business side. And they're people that kind of tell you what to do and and all that kind of stuff. So, and it kind of gets in the way of being creative mm. because these people are, are there because they want to make money and they're thinking like a business. They're not thinking from a creative side it's sad because I think for as much as there's a lot of amazing people that I've come across and positive and hard working I think there's just as many like sharks and people trying to rip you off and everything else but if we're talking about like the superstar DJ and all the kind of misconceptions that come with that it's definitely not the luxury lifestyle that it's kind of painted out to be. Mm. It's lots of inside of hotel rooms, inside of airports, inside of nightclubs. And then if you're out on, on the road, you become a part of the system. I would like leave my house here in the UK and then I'd, I'd travel down to an airport. And, and by the time I get there, then I'm having to like wait in the airport for three hours, then jump on a flight, which might be another three hours. And then by the time I actually get to the country, it's like, I don't have time to do anything. I've got to go straight to the venue and, and sound check. And then I might eat at the venue. And then I've got time to like waste backstage because they don't want you to go anywhere. They want you to stay there so they know where you are. And then you might not be on until early hours. So it's like one, two o'clock in the morning. And then you play for two hours. Then you might try and get like an hour's or sleep. Or the venue to pay you. Or, or, <laughs> <laughs> and then, or an after party yeah. sometimes people are like hey come to an after party and then yeah you might get like one hour sleep two hours sleep and then if you're on a tour then obviously you don't get to sleep because then you're back at the airport again and you're flying to the next place 
so it's it's just very exhausting and it is kind of rock and roll and everything but in terms of what it does to you physically and mentally then it's um you know just exhausting and draining and yeah sometimes can be not yeah if you're not let's let's talk about let's talk about that a little bit more actually because touring was something that that came up when we spoke off air so we'll talk about performing producing in a second so I guess the biggest example of how touring can tragically go wrong, you know, and its mental health consequences obviously was the the tragic case of Avicii who took his own life in 2018. Where were you when that happened? And was there ever a point where you thought, given your experience, like, gosh, if I had done this wrong or something else could had gone wrong, that could have been me? So I don't really follow the EDM scene that closely. So I, I probably can't tell you exactly where I was when, when I heard his death. But I've definitely seen the chain of events that can kind of lead you to the headspace that he was in. I think you constantly have to be on all the time. You know, you're like flying around from venue to venue and you're not really sleeping and you're drinking alcohol and, you know, all the things that we just talked about. But I think when you mix fame in with all of that, then everything becomes like amplified. And, you know, I've played venues where... I've seen DJs who at the time were like smaller than me and playing in a smaller room. And then six months later, they're headlining a huge festival or they're packing out a huge stadium or something. So I've seen like how quickly it can change just suddenly. And I don't think anything or anyone kind of prepares you for that level of scrutiny Mm. because, you know, you go from being completely in control of your life to suddenly you know, this whole team around you who's telling you where you are next and what you're going to do next. And it's like, because you're part of this big machine, people are relying on you mm. like financially because because you're the, you're the, you're the, yeah. the paycheck, yeah. Yeah. you're the product. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think there's this huge amount of pressure like put on you and like kind of moving on from that, something that I have seen is, and that I was sort of there when it happened, although it's maybe less to do with mental health, but it definitely shows you the dangers of that kind of world is, I think it was about 2011, I played a festival in Lille in France. And this was just when DJ Medi passed mm. away. And DJ Medi being a DJ who was on the Ed Banger label. And yeah, he was meant to play this festival and he died like the day or the couple of days before and a lot of the Ed Banger crew pulled out obviously Mm. because they were grieving so it was mainly just myself who went over and too many DJs were there Mm. as well Soul Wax and there was a guy doing visuals and he just kept showing like whilst I was playing whilst too many DJs were playing photos of Medi and and the crowd were just like shouting his name it was really emotional and really sort of touching and everyone was kind of like shocked but grieving at the same time at that show and I think there was kind of a sense of community in that room at that one time but yeah I I think it's sad that you know it shows you the dangers of it and 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 especially in in more recent times with Zadar from Cassius dying of a similar Mm. thing Sophie Mm. dying of a similar thing it's like the dangers of like tall buildings and and events and mixing alcohol and all of that combined I think we forget sometimes that you're just human and that there's all this sort of expectation to do this and do this and it's like I think you you forget of your surroundings Mm. you forget what's around you sometimes yeah for sure and I think it's been great that other producers and DJs have come out in recent years about the mental health you know think you think of the likes of Ben Pierce and Banger and I'm sure loads of other people that you know I haven't mentioned but how have you found you know other DJs as a good support network to talk about those experiences and, and how have you 
created that happy medium for yourself between touring, sort of relaxing and managing your own mental health and self-care, I guess? I mean, I've spoken to people, but no one sort of in particular sort of jumps out, but just more talking about it if it crops up in conversation. So, you know, like I, I suffer from tinnitus and I've spoken to, you know, other DJs about tinnitus and like, you know, music business struggles and pressures and frustrations about the industry. So when you're in the green room or backstage somewhere and you're killing time, then that's that's kind of where conversation leads. But I think it's important to be vocal about what you're going through and this industry is pretty tough at times and and a lot of it is like behind closed doors Mm. nobody really like knows exactly what's going on and what should happen what shouldn't happen so I think it's just good to talk about it to see the similar positions that other people are in and like compare what you're doing to what other people are doing so let's go back to performing and producing now so for you Louis what impact does producing or playing music or DJing have on your mental health? And which one out of those helps you the most with your mental health, do you think? I would say I'm much more at home when I'm producing. I would say DJing is probably not very good for my health. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, like I say, when you go on like a long tour or something. I've seen, you know, like bigger DJs and they're like playing every week or you know sometimes two three days a week and I just think of the toll that that has on you not only because it's exhausting but also because I've kind of been there you know like you're drinking alcohol just to stay awake or you know having a red bull or whatever just to stay awake and once you're doing that every night and once you feel that way plus I mean again like this is something perhaps we could get into but again the tinnitus thing it was something that I mean I kind of started DJing like seriously when I was like 17, 18. And at the time, no one talked about tinnitus. Nobody wore earplugs or ear protection or anything. And it kind of got to a point where when I was doing that thing of playing show after show, that I noticed that when I got back to my hotel room at night, the ringing was still there and really loud. And I'd wake up the next day on the plane the next day and I could still hear the ringing. And uh, eventually it would die down and I'd, say to myself oh that that lasted quite a long time that time and then I'd do it again and I'd do it again and eventually the ringing just never stopped and so today I still have this ringing in my ear and at the time I didn't really know how to deal with it so you know it was affecting my sleep and even today if I'm in a completely silent room so there's like no background noise or anything like that then it's noticeable and I can hear it but I've learned to deal with it so it's like having background noise or being distracted so you don't notice it and all those kind of things but that's only something now that's talked about more and it's only from speaking to other DJs about it especially those that were around the same kind of time as me and like grew up the same kind of time as me that they went through that where nobody wore earplugs and in some cases people have it worse than me Mm. you know I spoke to Errol Alcan and he said that 50% of one of his ears he's lost the hearing completely and Milo that we'll get onto later he said that 80% in one of his ear he's lost the hearing completely and I'm very lucky that it hasn't really affected my hearing like I can hear fine and I can hear really quiet and I can hear really loud but for me, it is the tinnitus, it's that constant ringing. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, obviously in hindsight, I wish I did wear earplugs and I wish I did, you know, kind of protect my ears a bit more. And I'm very conscious of it now, like how loud I listen to music and whether it be I'm writing or whether I'm in a club or whatever, I'm very like conscious of that. But in a way, it's kind of like, 
it's sort of inevitable because even if you do wear earplugs like chances are then you're going to be exposed to loud music because that's kind of the nature of what someone like myself Mm. does but yeah i mean that's just something like i say it hasn't really been spoken about until more recently yeah i actually spoke to a a dj called uh, jack circuit who's a good friend of mine from university and he spoke about tinnitus and he actually got tinnitus not from djing which i found quite ironic because i was like oh did you get it from being in the club he was like no actually i just got it from some other factors and he talked a lot about his mental health and how it affected him you know you look at if we're going to go really back in the day films like it's all gone pete tong which kind of i guess exposed a little bit of that side obviously to an extreme degree in that he went deaf i think the actor or the character who who was in that film do you think that there is now a concerted effort or focus to talk about the link between tinnitus and mental health more or do you think it's still a little bit not really kind of established I mean, yes, more people are talking about it, but maybe not in a mental health way, maybe just more in a, you know, the dangers of listening to loud music. Yeah, definitely. You know, obviously, like I say, it can can definitely affect you mentally, whether it is problems with sleep or whether it is just like trying to block it out because it's there, it's always going to be there. And if you just focus on it, then of course, it's going to run you down and you're going to get really frustrated and annoyed. But yeah, it's just learning to cope with it. I think more people should talk about things you can do to help you know ease it because unfortunately it is something that you just kind of have to live with because there you know there isn't a cure there isn't a way to stop it so yeah I think it's good it's it's good that more people are talking about it yeah let's talk about DJing a little bit now because I always talk to guests who have have had a significant DJ career can you remember the first ever DJ set you did and Can you maybe tell me about the mental process behind that, the build-up, and if you had any sort of nerves or anxieties? What are your what your memories of that time? I remember my very first DJ set. So I was in school. I was like thirteen or fourteen, and I played vinyl. And because everyone in the crowd was (laughs) yeah, and because everyone in the crowd was teenagers, nobody danced. Everyone stood there and arms crossed. (laughs) What a crowd! um, Yeah, exactly. What a tough Put your hands crowd. Up in the air. There's no Carl Cox in there, is there? It's no <laughs> So, you know, I remember being like super nervous and, and everything. But in terms of like more professionally, I, I remember the first time I went abroad for a show was in Switzerland. And I think I just turned 18 and I took a flight on my own for the very first time. And I just landed. And this was a time when roaming on phones was just like a new thing. So, you know, you could use your mobile phone abroad. And I just landed and I have like an itinerary and it says, you know, to like contact the promoter when you land. And my phone doesn't doesn't work. So I'm like, shit, what do I do? What do I do? It's literally um, my worst nightmare. That. So that's I, why I don't, that's why I go, yeah. go, go on holidays on my own. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up finding a payphone and I I phoned my manager at the time and I was like my phone doesn't work I can't I can't contact the promoter and he kind of got hold of my parents and they were trying to figure out how to contact my phone network and get Roman to work on my phone and everything and it all got sorted in the end but yeah there was that brief moment of like panic but I think traveling on your own anyway and especially at that age being so young you kind of have to be super independent all of a sudden and you know you kind of have to grow up quick and uh, I didn't go to university or anything so whilst my friends are at uni that's what I was doing you know I was out playing places so that was kind of my real world experience and you know sort of going out of my hometown and like you know discovering Mm -hmm. the world or whatever so you know it was amazing in some aspects but then 
it was a bit kind of daunting and scary and in other ways we talk a lot on this podcast louis as well about the importance of making mistakes and failure you know for the listeners in my room i've got a painting of mac miller and a quote from him about making mistakes and rest in peace to mac so for you is there any dj set that you can share where maybe a mistake did happen and most importantly for the listeners what did you learn from it early on it wasn't uncommon to play like a room of like 10 people so you'd uh, go abroad or you go somewhere in the UK and you know you'd be promised this this and this and it'd be really good and there'll be loads of people and you turn up and there's 10 people and that can kind of be for a number of things could be that it wasn't promoted very well or wasn't advertised or perhaps people don't know about the venue perhaps people don't know you and they don't know your music or anything so you know there's not people that are going to take their time out to go if you're playing like a festival then you might be in one tent and then in another tent that might be a huge like a-lister so of course people are going to go over to them and I think it's quite crippling because you're going to compare yourself to others you're going to be like well is, is it me and kind of blame yourself I think it's hard to not take it personally and and to kind of feel responsible for it like you feel like you've let down the venue or you've let down the promoter and it's really something that you have like no control over but in terms of the music side rather than the dj side there's decisions that i've made where sometimes i feel like what if you know like decisions that i've made was like well what if i did do that or what if i didn't do that one thing that kind of sticks out in my mind is there was a song that i put out a few years ago called the receiver and it was more commercial Mm -hmm. sounding slightly and an a and r got in contact and said we really like this song we'd like to sit down with you and have a meeting in in london and just like discuss whether you know i could go with them and they could look after me and blah 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 and so I, I went down to London and I sat down with them and they said okay so we love this song and we want more songs like this song and to me that was the worst thing you could have said to me because I'm the kind of person I hate repeating mm. myself I love to like constantly change constantly evolve and for someone to say we love this do more of this to me that says like almost like I can't yeah, be as crea- creative. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. limiting. Yeah, exactly. But I often think about that because they were the management company for like Calvin Harris and the Prodigy and people like that. So I constantly think, well, did I make the right decision? And what if I just stuck it for a little while and did that for a few years? Would it have been so bad? And But at the time, my headspace was as it is today. And, and like I say, I didn't want to do that. It wouldn't be fun to me. I, my heart wouldn't be in it. And I'd kind of be lying to myself to do that. So yeah, I mean, there's decisions that I've made over the years that I either regret or constantly overanalyze and, and question. Mm. Going back to sort of issues in the industry you wanted to discuss, Louis, very quickly, one thing you mentioned when we spoke off air was this lack of community outside of a music environment and this idea that maybe outside of shows, there's a very hyper-competitive attitude amongst your peers and barriers start to come up when the artist is separated from the person. I'm sure many people even from the outside, can understand how competitive the music industry is in it. Can you explain your experience with this a little bit more? Is this just small talk it affects, or does it go a bit deeper than that when it comes to relationships? I think some of it is ego, and I think some of... (laughs) Not not hard to imagine either. (laughs) And then I think some of it is just the competitive system that's in place you know so everything is numbers these days you know so spotify instagram facebook everything is how many followers do you have and 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 i feel like that kind of 
forces you to focus on you and focus on your fan base and like creating content for your fan base and constantly trying to be like relevant and stay in people's minds and stay in people's heads and I think whether intentional or not it makes you be slightly egotistical because you're just focusing on yourself you're not really looking at what other people are doing you're not really communicating and talking with other people so and I just think that's the nature of those platforms I mean I don't think it's any secret most people know that social media is anything but social but I think it's getting a little bit better because there's there's places like a discord and reddit and places like that where it's more conversation based so I think that's generally what's sort of missing from social media is conversations you know rather than just comments and posts and stuff it, it doesn't help conversation so I think if more people talked and and there was a better way to communicate, I think it would eradicate that kind of mm. competition a little bit and, and have a bigger sense of community. Mm. So. Speaking of social media, the advent of it has helped artists in many, many ways. It's probably caused as many problems as well, if I'm being brutally honest. And one of the challenges that many independent artists are now faced with is that they're forced to be a social media specialist, a marketing manager, a video editor, a copywriter, presenter, an artist, all at the same time. It's very much a one-man band and something that I actually sort of share a little bit in doing vent in having to sort of be all these things at once. I'm sure trying to learn a few things, but it's obviously very hard (laughs) to manage that with a full-time job. What impact can all of that have on an artist's mental health do you think do you think it increases risk of burnout in a way definitely and I think it's it can be too much for one person and I think you're kind of expected to be not just do many things but almost be like an expert at them all like from day one and I don't think that's healthy because you kind of have this illusion of being like well if you don't know video and you don't know audio and you don't know social media and you don't know marketing and you don't know promotion, then it's like you're not successful. And it's like your song, if you're a musician, your song, if it doesn't have millions of plays on day one, then it's like, oh, well, it must be something I did. You know, it must be like maybe my video wasn't as good. Maybe my music wasn't as good. Maybe I marketed it the wrong way. And I think I think it's better to be good at one thing. So I think if you do music, do music really well. If you do video, do video really well and find like your niche, you know, find your like gap in the market or whatever, because I think you'll be more successful at doing one thing and doing it really well than doing lots of things like mediocre. So yeah, it's a shame that it's kind of got to that way. But at the same time, I think a lot of that is like pressure from labels that, you know, they like to sign people now who are like a full package and everything's done already so they can just step in. Like there's no building done by labels anymore. Mm. It's like you have to already be established and making a bit of noise in order for them to be interested. in. Yeah. You, so. Before we talk about discography and then the final part of this topic, Louis, I want to briefly talk about bandwagoning because you mentioned there about labels sort of jumping on trends and follow accounts and stuff and music labels jumping on bandwagons is nothing new in the industry mate but in recent years labels have started to give deals to viral sensations well a little bit more than they used to I guess you know whether it was Glastonbury Alex if you can remember the guy who danced to Dave or the geezer uh-huh. from the video of a load of people dancing and singing along to the Ardyverse on Tion Wayne and Russ Millian's body record. <laughs> or going further back, and the kids might not remember this if they're listening to it, the Crazy Frog ringtone, which somehow made yeah. it to number one. Crazy, crazy <laughs> days. When hugely talented artists aren't getting the breakthroughs and trends like this are, 
especially people who, obviously excluding some of those talents last week we mentioned, maybe the trends that present a illusion of talent when they might have like a team of writers doing all the work for them. What mental health impact do you think it has on those underground artists or those undiscovered artists? Is it jealousy? Is it envy? Is it anger? A little bit of that. I mean, I'm old enough to remember Millie Vanilli. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's kind of like it's the same. I see parallels there. But then you could even argue that, you know, huge pop stars like Madonna. Like Madonna is amazing. She's iconic. She's a great singer. Does she write her own music? No. Does she produce her own music? No. Does she play instruments? No. But it's like, would you say she's not talented? I would yeah, say she's, she's talented. She's evolved um, over the last, well, 30 plus years, hasn't she, in the game? So Exactly. And I think she's the perfect example of someone where talent is just one of the things you need to be like successful in the pop world, I think. Because, you know, you have to look the part. You have to be a great singer. You have to have good songs. You have to be a likable personality there's there's all that thing that you know a pop star has to mm. be but i think in terms of the people behind the music so the writers and things like that i mean i think if you talk to any writer they'd probably say that they definitely want a bit more opportunities and they definitely want a bit more recognition whether there's things like jealousy i'm not sure because i know writers who love to write and that's that's mm. what they get the kick out of they don't see themselves as pop stars and they don't want to be famous or whereas you know, whatever. You know, some writers do that to become artists you know, m started writing out for loads and loads of artists or rita or people like that yeah exactly so i think it just depends on the individual and and i i think yes it is more the way in which labels are kind of signing people now it probably is more focused on the digital world than it ever has been and and obviously yes it is more to do with followers and how much hype someone's got in order for them to sign people but you know if they've got the right writers and they've got the right production team it's like what's the difference between a song that has 17 writers and five producers and you know a song that was produced and written by one person mm. it's like if you hear it on the radio you're not going to be able to tell the difference mm. so unless you're um, prince because he used to tell everyone <laughs> unless you're prince yeah and i think that is one thing that that perhaps should change is that genuinely singer songwriters are more celebrated whereas i think if you're a songwriter that worked with like i say seven other people then it's like well you're kind of like brushed aside and you're not as important and you're not because it's unclear of what you did essentially but i think it should be more open you know you shouldn't have to dig through credits in order to find someone's name it should be more when they do the press and when they do the press releases and all that kind of stuff they sh should say the writers and it should be more open I yeah think, so. let's talk about your discography now because the first track you ever put out was a record called love in 2008 which is from your debut ep the peach now i'm right in saying at the time people mistakenly thought it was Thomas Bangalter from Daft Punk who wrote that and put it out. Now, as a young buck in the scene, right, I'm picturing this 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old me, if that was me. How nuts was it for people to even mistake your track as a Daft Punk record? <laughs> I think I didn't really take it in at the time, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, I, I was just some kid with like a, a cracked copy of some music software and I stuck the song online. And I didn't really think much of it. And then when I saw articles comparing me to like Daft Punk and somebody thought I was like Joe Goddard from Hot Chip <laughs> and Errol Alcan and Stuart Price. And it was kind of frustrating because 
I had to say, no, 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 it's not these guys. It's me. It's this 17-year-old kid from Norwich in his bedroom, <laughs> you know, and it, it doesn't have the same cool ring to it. <laughs> so the whole idea of like, like I said before, the whole idea of having like a French name was to be mysterious and, and ominous and maybe respect I think that kind of well. ruined. Yeah. 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 And, and it kind of ruined my plan because then it was like, oh, well, you know, I have to explain who I am and everything. And it's not, it's not quite as cool. But even then, I, I didn't know it would be, I didn't know obviously that it was going to lead to, to being like successful and I would get a management company and I would get a booking agent off the back of it. I mean, I just stuck it out for free because of example clearance and stuff. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I could never have predicted like how big it, it would have been and and what it meant to me. And it kind of, you know, kickstarted my career and stuff. But I think the only downside is, like I said before, it's like the name because it's, you know, I'm associated with French touch and French house. And it's it's quite hard sometimes to steer away from that and stray away from that because mm. people expect a certain sound of you because you kind of get pigeonholed so i think it's better now i think you know most people probably know me more for more discovery stuff these days but yeah so you know like i say i was 17 i didn't i didn't really like take it on board and until a lot later in life when i look back on it i realize you know what kind of happened <laughs> you talked to the top of the pod about how your music idols are the likes of Basement Jacks and Fatboy Slim. You have put out a lot of remixes in your career, Louis, and you've remixed for the likes of them, including them, I should say. Mm-hmm. Did that give you any sort of surrealness or imposter syndrome or sort of realize, wow, I'm actually remixing for the idols that I grew up listening to? Yeah, and it's kind of rewarding, but then it's also daunting, but then it's also like I say before you realize that you're on that level playing mm. field which is nice and it's a compliment and you know sometimes it's there's a lot of luck I mean for example the Fatboy Slim remix that I did last year so Norman was like my hero as a kid like I, I had a, a poster on my wall as a kid and I adored Norman and yeah so I noticed that last year it was like 20 years 25 years since halfway between the gutter and the stars which was you know one of his big albums and there was a song on there that which i loved as a kid called retox and i just thought i wonder if i can like jump on this somehow like i know it's 20 years so i'm seeing like other releases that they're putting out because it's 20 years you know this person's done a remix and that person's done a remix so i was like you know what i'm gonna do a bootleg and i'm gonna somehow get it to norman so I did a bootleg. I was happy with it. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get this to Norman. How am I going to get this to Norman? And I figured like the, probably the best way was to go through the label. So I went through the label and I, I sent them the remix. I didn't hear anything back for a couple of weeks. And then, and this is kind of cheeky, but I managed to find out a private Instagram that Norman <laughs> has that nobody knows about. And I found out that it was Norman. And I just sent him a message and I just said, big fan i've done this what do you think just sort of left it at that in his message requests open (laughs) yeah exactly not expecting him to kind of reply or anything and then he did and then he really liked it and he wanted to put it out and so we made it like official and they did artwork for it and i was back and forth with norman over email and i was kind of like pinching myself because it was like if i could tell you know like 12 year old 13 year old me that you're gonna be talking to Norman Cook over email you know I think I would have died so yeah it's it's crazy when things like that happen and I mean there's one more which I'll, I'll try and keep brief but in 2012 I got the chance to remix Madonna it's kind of a bit of a sad story oh God, because right. Here we go. 
<laughs> it never came oh. out. The reason it never came out was they changed their mind on the single. So they sent me all the parts. I did the remix. I sent it back to the label. They had to send it to Madonna herself because apparently she approves all of her remixes. Mm. She loved it. She wanted to put it out. They paid me. It was ready to go. It was ready to come out. And then at the last minute, they changed their mind on the single. So it never came what out. What era Madonna so was that? It was 2012. So it was that MDMA oh, album. So she went a bit more housey and sort of, yeah. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. And the song was actually called Masterpiece, which is one of the more like, slow song so it was quite difficult to kind of turn it into mm. more of a copy track <laughs> but yeah it's one of those things where like i can say i've remixed madonna but you can't hear it which is really <laughs> frustrating <laughs> people go bullshit <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you put out three studio albums so far so your debut was to rest is to rust in 2015 sleepless nights was in 2017 and then the excellently and beautifully named if i'm right in saying saturday night griever in 2020 which one of those means the most to you and your mental health? Because they all, I guess, have an element of mental health messaging in the titles. Yeah, it's nice that you picked up on that because I don't, I don't think anyone else has really noticed that before. But all the titles are very like personal to me. So to rest is to rust was at the time I split with a management company after seven years, and it was kind of like am I doing the right thing? And I was very sort of worried about it. So, you know, the title is literally that. If I rest, if I try and stop now, I'll stop completely and I'll never I'll never pick it up again. Sleepless Nights was literally that. Originally, I wanted to call it Too Many Sleepless Nights because I was worrying about the type of music it was and whether people would gravitate towards it or if I would sort of alienate people with it. So Sorry, ambient I was quite worried as well. With... Like it's got a lot yeah. of like, ambient stuff coursing through it. Definitely. And then the more recent album, Saturday Night Griever, was actually about articles I was reading in the couple of years that I spent writing it beforehand about the dying nightlife. Mm. So it was like, you know, people aren't going out that much anymore. Nightclubs are closing at like alarming rates. And then obviously COVID hit. So it was like, it took on this whole new meaning that I didn't even mean for it to be about so yeah they're all very personal titles and and I've, I've just finished a new album actually but it'll come out like in a few months time but that has a title which I won't say but that has a title that is also like very you know means a lot to me mm. so I can't yeah. do this pod without mentioning your collab with house legend Milo it was a track called lovers it's a massive banger I think it's got like 39 plays on my iPod which is quite a lot back to front <laughs> The man behind one of the greatest house records of the early noughties dropped the pressure and obviously the sample, of course, taken from Miami Sound Machine's Dr. B. Milo hadn't made a record for over 20 years prior to that. So how on earth did you get him to do that track with you and how special a moment was that for you personally? So my love for Milo goes back, you know, like to that album, you know, 2004, Something I think like it was, yeah. Destroy Rock and Roll. And that played like a huge part in my sound and influenced me a lot. And yeah, like you say, he like he never followed it up. He kind of disappeared. And in 2018, I sent him an email and I just said how much I loved what he, he does and what his music meant to me. And just posed the question of what if we wrote a song together? No pressure. Let's just get in the studio and have a laugh and see what happens. If nothing comes of it, then, you know, it doesn't matter. And a couple of weeks went by and I, I didn't hear anything. I didn't get an email back. And then suddenly out of the blue, he wrote back 
and he you know thanked me and he actually invited me down to his house in London and his studio was actually at the end of his garden in this like brick built kind (laughs) of studio and when you walk in it's kind of like going back in time because he has like shelves of old Milo vinyl from the Destroy Rock and Roll album, all just white labels that, you know, have like a stamp on them. And then he has all the old tour stuff. So it's like, you know, big cases, metal cases that say Milo on them that, you know, he used when he was like on the on the road or whatever. And yeah, we just like sat down and, um, you know, I posed the question to him, you know, so w- what happened? You know, <laughs> why the gap? And there's a story to be told there, and I think eventually he probably will. Well, if you're listening, please come on and tell the story. I'd love to have you on. Yeah, yeah, and if he doesn't, he doesn't. But I think the main thing is that life kind of got in the mm. way, and I think that he's a dad now, and his relationship with his son is really sweet, and I can see why he wouldn't want to trade that. But in terms of our song, then yeah, it was just a, it just turned into a big jamming session. I played him some ideas, he played me some ideas. And yeah, there was just this one little idea that I had called Lovers and he really gravitated towards it. And he'd play like some overdub synth parts and we'd reference different songs. And there was like a part where he was just like, you know what, why don't we just like do a key change here? Let's just change the key. And I was like, okay, like, (laughs) let's just do it. So it was very like kind of natural and everything. But yeah, it was weird because from what he told me this whole time, he's still been writing music. He's never stopped. Even though he hasn't put anything out this whole time, he's literally been writing music. And the tiny snippets that I heard that he played me, you know, it sounded like the same old milo to me so um yeah i mean you know i hope he he keeps doing that and i hope eventually like i say that he tells us his mm. story so let's reflect on your music journey louis you've had this amazing career spanning over 14 years throughout all these experiences what has it taught you about yourself do you think it's mainly just given me lots of confidence i think it's made me less shy and seeing so much of the world i think gives you a greater understanding of different people's cultures and other people and I feel very lucky to be able to do what I do which is my passion as like a full-time job and I think it's strange that having so much of my life be semi-public you know whether it be photos or videos or interviews and stuff I can kind of look back and you know look at my younger self and realize you know like how far I've come and even with things like this and interviews, you know, I can look back in an interview that I did when I was like 17, 18 and like cringe at the <laughs> thought of it because I couldn't put two words together mainly. I would stumble over my words and I'd just constantly um and ah and like literally I still do a little bit now, but it's it was really bad back out. then. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Edit it all out. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, because of that, I think it's helped being that kind of so public and seeing the change physically mentally yeah so for the good and the bad like of course there's good things and there's bad things but on the whole I'm you know I'm I'm very happy to kind of have the career that I've had really and also that it's kind of been gradual I'm kind of glad that it wasn't just bang you know and you're in the top 40 or whatever I'm kind of glad that my career's kind of been like this slow and steady like staircase kind of thing Sometimes, you know, you have good years, sometimes you have bad years. But on the whole, I'm, you know, I'm really happy with the way it's gone. We've talked about Louis LaRoche, the DJ, the producer. 
Let's go behind the decks and talk about your own journey, Brett. So first of all, and I ask all my special guests this question, talk to me about maybe your early life, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Brett we meet here? So I was very quiet in school and I was very shy. I was the kind of kid that never put the hand up in class. Like I, Opposite to I me. Blend, <laughs> yeah, I blended in. Like you wouldn't even know yeah. I was there. Like I literally just blended in. But for some reason I loved like show and tell. So like going to the front of the class and kind of like, you know, showing off. Oh, I brought this in from home. Maybe that was a clue, you know, mate, for later years. Yeah, probably, <laughs> probably. But yeah, I generally I kind of hated school and I hated early mornings and I, I didn't enjoy it at all really and my teenage years were kind of like me just like finding my place in the world and like who I was and I hung around with like the skater kids because most kids I didn't really fit in with and they didn't listen to dance music but for some reason the skater kids oh right I was expecting pop punk here and loads of grunge right okay no no yeah just like I say the skater kids and I felt like I never really found like my kind of people because I was the only person I knew that liked dance music (laughs) and because I was so like introverted and quiet and stuff but also I'm not the most masculine manly man ever and I kind of hung around with girls more than boys because you know most of my closest friends were girls and I just something about I mean it's it's kind of true to today like most of the people I work with if it's singers or producers tend to be women because I don't know why but there's something about that dynamic that I just I find much more comforting you know yeah yeah, comforting and I can I can be myself and yeah I mean it even goes back to like the very first person that I dated in school you know I felt that I could be closer to that person than I could my mates you spoke about this yin and yang concept you said you've struggled with as an adult and I guess probably when you were picked up by management when you were 17 Brett which was this separation between Louis LaRoche the artist and Brett the person can you explain that conundrum for me when it comes to how it's impacted your mental health is Louis a completely different person from Brett do they both have similarities or what's that sort of conundrum I suppose Louis is almost like the person that I almost am expected to be. I mean, I don't really like sharing too much. So I've said this in like an interview before, but sometimes I feel like Clark Kent and Superman, you know, (laughs) so Clark Kent is the regular boring guy that you wouldn't turn your head for. And Superman's the guy that like, oh my God, Superman's just walked into the room, you know. And that's what it can feel like sometimes, you know, that you're kind of living up to people's expectations and even if it's like shows and stuff. I love it when, you know, fans come up to me and stuff. And and of course, you know, I know they've paid money for the show. So I'll talk to them and sign things and take photos. And I love it. And I really enjoy that. But at the same time, it's like, that's not me. That's not me that you're interested in. That's Louis. And so perhaps I'd feel differently if like fans called me Brett, but they don't. They call me Louis because that's how they know me. So it just puts things into focus a bit. And like I say, just what you're expected to be and and what you actually are sometimes are just two Mm. completely different things. Having that artistic persona must present a lot of challenges, but has it ever had any positives for you as well like have you ever taken any qualities from Louis into your life as Brett or maybe vice versa mainly just the confidence I Mm. think just because you know it's like being thrown in the deep end and I've sort of had to adapt whether I liked it or not because it just kind of comes with the territory when you're you know a musician so yeah I'm a lot more confident than I was when I was a kid yeah that's kind of the main thing really Mm. if I'm honest I want to talk about 2020 now and the year we've just had and COVID-19 because it was a difficult year for pretty much 
everyone, Brett. And there were two reasons you found it particularly difficult. Now, the first and most obvious one is COVID-19 and it's affected everyone. It's affected me. How did the pandemic affect your mental health personally and then maybe your career too? So it definitely affected the last album because obviously I released that at the height of the pandemic and no one was listening to music at that time and (laughs) just sour clubs (laughs) yeah clubs were closed and all press stopped and I couldn't tour and by the time like lockdown hit then it was kind of too late to pull the album because it was already in like the kind of early stages and I think generally like the music industry slowed down because you know you couldn't get reviews or radio because people were working from home and slow on emails and the industry even now is kind of still waking up but yeah, I mean, I've I've kind of been like, my headspace, obviously, like most people, you know, you kind of sway one day, you're thinking, oh, things are going to be great. And then the next you're like, oh, God. But I think for the most part, I've been quite productive in a weird kind of way. I mean, obviously, writing this new album that I've just done, you know, I didn't expect to do another album. But in a way, it was like my way of coping. It was almost like my distraction and my kind of escapism and you'd probably expect it to be quite somber and sad but it's actually more the opposite and it's more very uplifting again because it's like you know escaping to that world like (laughs) somewhere different than here right now so yeah I mean like I say it had its good parts and its bad parts but I think for the most part I coped okay The other reason 2020 was such a difficult year for you, Brett, was that your mum suffered a brain hemorrhage just before the first lockdown. And we we chatted about this off air and my dad suffered a similar trauma in in 2014, 15, when he had a brain aneurysm. Can you, if you feel comfortable, talk to me about, you know, where you were when you found out and then that journey, how it affected you personally? So it was February last year, February 2020, and it's about mid-February, so coronavirus wasn't really, it was like kind of just being talked about. And my mum was an avid runner, so she she loved running. And one day, just out of the blue, I, I just got a call from my brother, and he said he'd just spoken to my dad, and my dad had found her on the bathroom floor with like a bash in her head and she was unresponsive and like having a seizure on the floor and he called an ambulance and myself and my brothers met my dad at the hospital and over the next like few weeks we went back and forth from the hospital every day and my mum was put in a coma and she had like complications with her heart and her brain and it was lots of like touch and go moments and like having conversations with the doctors telling you the odds was terrifying you know then many moments where you just think you know you kind of had to mentally prepare for the fact that she might not be here tomorrow so that was like a roller coaster but I'm sure like it was probably the same with you and your dad that because you're ready to kind of accept the worst what that does to you mentally but then what it kind of does to you physically and like you can't sleep and you're you're like constantly worrying and like yeah it's it's not like a fun place to be and I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it yeah. to anyone but yeah she um you know in terms of those kind of worries although the operation went well and they lifted her out of the coma it was like what's the recovery process like because mm. I, I didn't I don't know about you but I didn't know anything about the recovery process or 
what goes on what happens and you know i didn't know will she recover and if she does recover how long does it take and Are they gonna um, be the same person or yeah. exactly yeah. will she be able to speak will she be able to stand or walk or even like remember who i am when she comes out of the coma so yeah it's just like it really um it's just a, <laughs> a massive head fuck yeah it's just like yeah but because it just happened so quickly you know one day she was fine she led a healthy lifestyle and then bang just out of nowhere could literally happen to anyone and you know you're just like thrown in the deep end and it's like figure it out and yeah it was tough yeah (laughs) did it did it make you go on sort of autopilot in a way and having to kind of go to the hospital I mean I was at uni at the time so I came back kind of most weekends to see my dad when he was in ICU I almost didn't feel like loads of him I mean I, I felt a lot of emotion when I saw him for the first time in in the ICU because I kind of expected him to be kind of sitting up and just sort of being okay and then it was actually had all the tubes going into him and brain had to be drained but outside of that it was very much like okay I'm going to go see him or like I'm going to do this it felt very sort of automatic was that how it felt for you yeah and it definitely like all blurred into one as yeah. well because it was like it was like a daily basis you know just like going there every single day making sure I'm there you know just in case anything happens but then also like to support my dad and to support my family annoyingly obviously it happened as coronavirus was kind of starting to happen so we saw it go from like two people by a bedside to one person to then you know them saying you're not allowed to visit anymore and that it was just happened at the worst time because as they said you're not allowed to visit anymore that was just as she so she'd had her operation and she was just like coming to they were just lifting her out of the coma and it was like that's when she really needs someone by her bedside because she's about to wake up and suddenly realize where she is mm. and we couldn't be there and it it just like it was heartbreaking because you know you just felt useless you just felt like completely in no control of the situation i mean luckily in hindsight now that she's she's better she doesn't remember any of the Here does my dad. Hospital <laughs> even when he was like so, in a better state <laughs> yeah exactly so thank god you know she doesn't she doesn't remember any of it yeah. so. you were also moving house at the same time as your mom being in hospital which is just an awful stress-filled cocktail to have to deal with and i moved out recently into a flat on my own and even that was stressful having my parents help me out with a lot of it how did that cocktail affect your mental health yeah i'm not gonna lie it was pretty (laughs) stressful so it was like the album covid mum and hospital moving house a lot of emotion swirling around there (laughs) yeah and it all kind of happened you know pretty much at the same time you know moving house when you know you're meant to be under lockdown and so you know you're kind of like you're on the street am i meant to be going back and forth (laughs) from houses moving stuff am i allowed to be but I think the main thing was just the not sleeping because I was just constantly worrying, you know, is she okay and everything in hospital. So really that, you know, that just obviously understandably that became my focus and I wasn't really thinking about the album. I wasn't really thinking about COVID or the house or anything. I was just, const- you know, my mind was just thinking about her the whole time. So yeah, it was pretty bad, but I think luckily obviously things now are okay and, and you know, she's a lot better now. She, I'd, I'd say she's probably about 90% there. I mean, they say like the average recovery process is like two years. So she yeah. isn't quite at that mark yet. She's about a year and a half. Mm. So, but I think for her, I mean, obviously it affects different people differently, but for her, it's a short-term memory. So, mm. she, you know, that's still yet to come back fully. Sometimes she remembers things that happened yesterday or that she said five minutes ago. Other days she, she can't remember. But I think the main thing that was just so unfair was the fact that 
when she came out of hospital, we were still in lockdown and my dad had to deal with it all on his own. Mm. And it was so soul destroying because it was like, I just want to be there to like help him out and like cook him a meal or mm. something. And and it's like, I can't do any of that because, you know, we were under lockdown. And I can't go see him and I can't go see her. You know, I can't hug her because of COVID. Mm. So it was just like, so it wasn't until a lot later, you know, months and months later that, you know, I could finally see mm. them. And uh, How did that feel everything. when you could? Yeah, pretty amazing. Pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's just funny. I'm sure it's the same with your dad. It's like they almost like don't realize what they've been through. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> yeah, just like, a little bit. They're yeah. just like, oh, you know, it's like they were asleep the whole time and they just yeah. woke up and it's fine. You know, yeah, they my don't dad had some, realize. The, yeah, my dad had some happened. funny stories when you know when he was in. Like he said, I think he was on a lot of drugs at one point. He said, "I've just been on the, I've just been for an hour on the beach." Just some weird stuff that he said. But for you, mate, and for me stroke recovery or brain aneurysms or the the whole kind of spectrum of hemorrhage I guess we're, we're talking about can severely paralyze a lot of victims and I think I'm right in saying that my dad was in the top like one percent of recoveries from it and there's various reasons why you know we, we think that because he spoke four fluent languages that might have like helped his brain kind of like protect it from the shock or the bleed but people do change when they come out of these things even when they recover well my dad certainly changed a little bit he actually cries at literally everything now how did you seeing your mum go through the recovery journey sort of affect you personally because it's not something spoken about much is it no I mean obviously there's the whole you know like you say like the mental health side of it but also I think you know what it does to a family and I'd say we were a pretty strong unit beforehand Mm. but it just brings you so much closer because it's like you know you're trying to be there for each other and comfort each other I also think it like puts things into perspective yeah I was you know say, it kind of yeah. it makes you realize like wow like that could happen to me and like things could just change tomorrow or today in an hour's time you know it's like you think oh it's never gonna happen happen to me you know I'm I'm invincible I'm fine and out, it's of, like, sight, out you know, of mind and all that sort of stuff exactly yeah, yeah. exactly and and like I say say you try and live a healthy lifestyle and eat well and exercise and all that kind of stuff but it's like if you've got something like that in your brain or in your heart or wherever and you're unaware of it and you don't realize it's there and it just one day it just triggers then there's nothing you can do about it there's nothing it's just inevitable and it's going to happen so like Mm -hmm. I say it just it put everything into perspective and I think you know I I feel a lot more I don't know, just like trying to live live in the moment a bit mm. more. Do you think more <laughs> you know, and like, of life? Yeah, I, I think so. Just living in the moment and just like saying yes to more things and mm. like, yeah, just changes your outlook, I think. Yeah, so. I think I've definitely said yes to more things. I've also said no to things where I actually don't want to do them. I think it's yeah. kind of made me more like sort of firm in saying, actually, I'm not just going to say yes to this because I want to save face or I'm people pleasing or because I kind of, feel like I have to go there and in inverted commas. I'm actually going to be like, nah, I'm not on it. <laughs> and leave it Definitely. at that. <laughs> yeah. I want to reflect on this journey now too, if we can, Brett. So given what you've been through, A, what have these experiences taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and speak to that eight-year-old Brett who was struggling with shyness but loved show and tell, or maybe the 17-year-old Brett who was thrust into the industry spotlight or maybe the Brett even in his late 20s helping his mum recover from such a massive trauma. What would you say to him knowing what you do now? I'd say just make the most of it. I'd say enjoy yourself. Don't be so shy. Be a bit more outgoing and and like 
and not so introverted and i'd also say like it's okay to feel like you don't fit in because eventually you'll find people later in life that understand how you feel and it's okay to be different and just be you i think when you're younger you're comparing yourself to other people and if you don't fit a particular mold then you kind of feel like something's wrong with you so so yeah just all of that really our final topic of conversation brett and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests which is a general natter and chat about our mental health is a bit of quick fire it's a bit of deep questions so first off how do you say your mental health is at the moment mate I'd say it's pretty good. I'd say I'm still kind of a little bit anxious after the the Mm. year that we've had. (laughs) Obviously, things are kind of getting back to normal again, like slowly but surely. So it's um, yeah, I'm still a bit anxious, still a little bit scary to kind of be mixing with people and stuff. But I think I'm just being like a bit overly cautious about it. um, I think I'm the same. Yeah, other than that. Yeah. yeah. And if you felt comfortable saying what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day to day life? So yeah, something that we haven't really spoken about is that I have like some form of gender dysphoria. So Mm -hmm. it's not something that I I really speak about often. I've kind of touched on it a little bit in the past, Mm. but it's something that's kind of like deeply personal to me Mm -hmm. and something that I've like struggled with like Mm. for most of my life. And it's like a constant battle in my head between two people, one male, one female. And Mm. so some days I feel more masculine and other days I feel more feminine so sometimes I can feel like when I look in the mirror that it doesn't match the person who I am in my head Mm. but then other days I'm like hey I look good today you know and I've kind of learned to embrace it because I've had it for so long and I think because of that you know I don't consider myself trans but I'm very sensitive to trans people and and the struggles that they kind of go through and because I feel like I have some kind of connection with it because I partly understand it and I think having like musical role models like that like David Bowie and Prince and Mm. Michael Jackson and Sylvester and Little Richard and all all these people who kind of like gender um, non-conforming basically exactly exactly and I think that massively helped and kind of helped me like accept myself a little bit but yeah I mean that's something that I'm still kind of dealing with mm. today and it's something I still don't completely have a complete hold of mm. but I'm still I'm still kind of working it out and I, I think I probably never will like fully understand it it's just how I am and it's always it's how I've always been mm. I've always felt like that and I've always had that internal struggle so I'm just way more accepting of it now and I I'm just well that's just me that's just how I am that so yeah yeah have you been able to sort of channel it into kind of positive attributes maybe being more empathetic towards people or being kinder I guess to yourself and to other people or yeah definitely like I say like being more like understanding of trans people but then also kind of like I say that weird thing of like preferring to work with women and Mm. you know it all kind of makes more sense and it's something that's kind of that's been with me pretty much since like my mid-teens really Mm. and I didn't really speak to many people about it I spoke to like a girlfriend I had at the time and I spoke to a few close friends about it but mainly I just like kept it all inside for like so long because it's so personal and and because really I kind of I still even today I try and keep it vague because I I prefer to keep it that way because it's something very like uh 
you know, just very like it's still um, stigmatized. It's, it's so highly stigmatized for loads of men. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and I, and I think it's still hard to fully explain what it is to have it, and but also I feel like I shouldn't have to. You know, why do I need to explain it? I mean, luckily I have a girlfriend that's like very understanding of it and everything. But like you say, it has a certain stigma, but also yeah, it's just something that hasn't really been spoken about that much and is very much more of a modern thing and Mm. people coming coming out and saying that they have it or they've experienced it so yeah even in myself although it's not necessarily a new thing because I've had it all my life it's a new thing to kind of accept it and to talk about it yeah and I'm hopefully going to be having some conversations with some trans guests and some d-trans guests who talk about gender dysphoria so hopefully we can shed some more light on that issue but thank you for talking about that Brett I really appreciate that can you tell me about maybe the first time and age you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health again probably like mid-teens yeah I think not only the gender dysphoria but also like the shyness and the the overanalyzing like I really overthink even today I really overthink and I remember being a kid and getting on a train and buying a train ticket on the train and as the train conductor would come down the aisle I'd like overthink what it is I'm gonna say to buy a ticket <laughs> so I'd be, I'd be like where am I going again what do I need to say what type of ticket do I need I'd rehearse it in my mind and I'd go over it again and again and again and then when they finally got to me and and asked for my ticket and I'd say it it would just come out as gobbledygook because I'd overthink it that much and situations like that I've just learned to deal with where like something like that is so easy to get out of because you can just buy a ticket online beforehand so Mm. you you don't get to have that conversation you know you can just give me a ticket that's it done but that is something that I you know it's not that extreme anymore but that is something that I still do today I still overthink that much and I've just found that writing things down massively helps and getting it all out of my head because I can just overthink 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 you know I won't sleep or I'll you know uh, I'm be with friends but my mind is elsewhere and mm. I'm just trying to think about something else so yeah again it's just something that I'm trying to adapt to and something that's always been there so I'm just trying to like find new ways of dealing with mm. it I guess what triggers do you have that affect your mental health Brett so this could be things people might say to you it could be a sound it could be a particular social environment it could be building up to have a conversation with a train conductor like you said or have you not figured all of them out yet I guess I haven't figured them out. I guess just situations that make me feel uncomfortable, I try to avoid. But then also, you know, if we're talking about things like tinnitus and stuff, then obviously it's like, you know, trying to limit my exposure to loud noise. So then, you know, I don't get it really bad. So then because I know what my headspace will be in when when it's unbearable. And, Mm. you know, obviously limiting my exposure to that helps because, you know, I'm not exposed to it. So yeah just like I guess just avoiding certain things or um trying to change the way that I think about things which sometimes works and sometimes (laughs) doesn't speaking of things that work and which don't outside of writing what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked maybe which ones that 
maybe you've tried but haven't obviously people get told to do yoga all the time when they're yeah so i've tried like meditation and things like that but it just doesn't clear my mind like it doesn't it doesn't really help i mean it's not that i'm not a laid-back person i think i'm relaxed i'm very chill no i am very laid back but it's not that that really affects me it's more the internal just overthinking of things so yeah writing things down if it's tinnitus it's putting tv on in the background or you know just like I say, like distraction or something. But yeah, just mainly like um, being aware of certain situations so that if something has the potential of happening or then I try to like remove myself either from that situation or prepare myself for that situation. So. Mm. We talk a lot about two ideas on this podcast, Brett. So toxic masculinity and positive masculinity. Now, I believe toxic masculinity sometimes gets overused for a lot of things, but it does exist. And I think in particularly school, if you can nip it in the bud and stop it happening there, then you can stop it happening in adult life for a lot of men. I also talk a lot about positive masculinity because I feel hopefully in a few more years, maybe I'm being a bit naive, but maybe toxic masculinity will be in minority and positive masculinity will just be masculinity. So what would you define as toxic masculinity and what would you define as positive masculinity? I would say toxic is just stereotypes, really aged bad stereotypes. So boys don't cry, uh, boys can't show emotion, boys can't wear pink, they can't have long hair. You have to like beer and sports and mm. you, you can't wear certain clothes or makeup or you can't be a vegetarian. You know, some like really <laughs> extreme examples and it's all just bullshit. Yeah, I just, I think it's like embedded from such a young age in boys. And, and I think that by the time you go up to be a man, then all that stuff kind of stays with you. And I think that's why suicide rates in young men are so high, because it's like that period of your life, the, your late teens and your early 20s is when you're really like questioning who you are and how the world sees you. And I think because you've been told don't show your emotions don't cry it's like you're trying to deal with that on your own like in in your own head and it's a hard thing to like put yourself through without talking to other people and being open about it and discussing and all that kind of stuff so Mm. yeah I think I think that's definitely toxic in terms of positive I'd say just talking about things changing who your role models are i think looking at different people who are you know challenging certain stereotypes i think is is really important you know encouragement i'd say that like guys especially take compliments to heart and i think you know to compliment a guy when he's doing something that isn't those stereotypes goes a long way if a guy's wearing a pink shirt for example to say hey you look really good today or that shirt look you know suits you Mm. or something give a guy a compliment and like whether it be your guy mates or whoever even if it's not that even if it's just uh you know hugging a friend or something or saying are you okay to a friend a male friend so yeah just like being more open and conversation being more like encouraged and stuff because i think guys especially it's weird because when girls are with girls or women or with women, they talk about themselves. They talk about their problems. They talk about their worries and things like that. When guys get together, it's anything, it's anything but themselves. Yeah. It's anything and everything else. You know, what's on TV, what games they've played. Yeah. It's escapism. So, yeah. yeah, It is escapism. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm going to talk about all this other stuff because I'm not interesting or I'm not worth talking about or 
you know the things that I'm worried about or struggling with you know it doesn't really matter well, and, they look to other and, people to talk to that about exactly. instead of their boys and you please speak to your boys speak to your boys please <laughs> definitely definitely <laughs> and as a final question Brett and this is a broad one but what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it I think two things communication and awareness because I think talking openly honestly definitely helps but also having spaces and places to talk about these things is important as well you know whether that be events or online places or you know places just to talk basically I think it is getting better slowly but surely I think much more work needs to be done but I do think the stigma is definitely changing, especially with the younger generation. Like, I feel like Gen Z are more open to talking about their problems, whereas I feel like our generation, millennials, if not older, no one really talks about that thing. And the whole idea of like therapy and things like that is still very much has the stigma attached to it. And, you know, you feel like, oh, I'm you're failing because you're having to go to therapy if you compare it to like america everyone talks about the fact that they've just gone to see the therapist I mean, that it's can sometimes like, go both ways but yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's not taboo whereas in this country in the uk it's very taboo still and i think it shouldn't be i think you know if you're talking openly about the way you feel and your problems and your insecurities and your struggles that can only be a good thing because offloading all of that onto somebody else is really like comforting and it feels like a weight's been lifted you know from your shoulders and it's just not healthy just keeping it all inside so yeah communication and awareness I think communication awareness what a great way to end the podcast Louis LaRoche thank you so much for coming on behind the decks thank you Well, we have come to the end of this episode of behind the decks I hope you've enjoyed it because it's been an absolute honor to have interviewed one of my favourite producers, Louis LaRoche, and for him to let me go behind the decks with him. It's a very surreal life moment for me, and I've been telling all my mates who are music nerds that I've been able to interview Louis. So this is, yeah, just a weird and incredible moment for the podcast. That Louis LaRoche and Milo collab lovers we talked about on the pod will play us out. And as always, I'll put some links to where you can follow Louis on social media and stream his music in the show notes. Please do. He's got an absolute catalogue of bangers. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it. Spread the good news that we're doing here about Vent. If you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us out on the algorithms. If you want to support the work we're doing at Vent further, please visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, which is absolutely fine, you can visit our GoFundMe. The link for that is on all our channels and in our link tree. Stay tuned to the next episode of Behind the Decks. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent. On the floor. Let's be love and